Where does Jörg Zirinov from One Equity Partners see opportunities in the coming year? What dynamics are at play in the mid-market private equity industry in 2024? And what creative solutions can the private equity industry come up with to address challenges to deal-making? We'll be discussing all this and more in today's episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast by Merger Market. Hello, listener, and welcome to this new episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast by Merger Market. My name's Harriet Matthews. I'm funds editor at Merger Market, and I'll be your host for today's episode, in which we're bringing you a conversation with Jörg Zirner, a Frankfurt-based partner at Europe and US-focused mid-market private equity firm One Equity Partners. Jörg joined the firm in 2006, bringing with him restructuring experience from Roland Berger, one year after the firm transferred from Bank One to JP Morgan. OEP spun out from JP Morgan in 2015 and is now deploying equity via its One Equity Partners 8 fund, which held a final close in 2022 on 2.75 billion US dollars. To give a bit of background on the firm's recent activity in Europe now, it announced the sale of Volki, a Finnish packaging and engineering materials business, in October 2023. Also last year, but a little earlier in June, it announced that it was going to buy UK-based digital agency MSQ from UK-based sponsor LDC. Also last year, it announced the close of a one billion US dollar continuation fund with the aim of supporting the continued growth of two of its European portfolio companies, namely aftermarket construction parts manufacturer and distributor USCO and laboratory glassware manufacturer DWK Life Sciences. In our interview, I spoke to Jörg about a range of topics, including OEP's mid-market strategy and how its European and North American setup works in practice. We also talked about the current outlook for the mid-market, particularly in the wake of 2023, which was a year that was very much dominated by mega-cap fundraising success. I hope you'll find his insights as interesting as I did. Now, let's listen to my conversation with Jörg. Jörg, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I wanted to start off by asking you, obviously, I've given an introduction to you and to, to One Equity Partners, your kind of strategy and, and recent activity to our listeners ahead of this. But I wanted to hear directly from you as well on uh, OEP's strategy. You know, OEP is a self-described um, middle market firm, but of course, you know, this is quite a, a large and competitive market. So I wanted to hear a bit about that from you and, and what you would say maybe kind of makes you stand out in, in this sphere. Yeah, thank you. Um, I would say in a nutshell, these are three things. Um, first, as you rightfully say, we operate in the middle market and generally compete with other middle market funds um, that usually have a local or national focus. We have a global setup and offices on both sides of the Atlantic in New York, Chicago, but also in Frankfurt and Amsterdam, and uh, soon to be in Milan. And we su support mid-sized companies from the US and Europe to grow in these respective markets. Thereby we can do what essentially large cap PEs can do, but for significantly smaller companies with EBITDAs around 20 to 50 million, 
which the big guys would not yet be interested in. Secondly, I would say very senior team, which of course adds strongly to our experience base and credibility. And overall, as a team, we've done more than 120 platform investments and well above 300 add-on acquisitions, which I believe is, is fairly unique in, in the market. And thirdly, we always invest with a business purpose and tell managers and owners, here's we, what we would do and we would like to do it with you. And in this context, we spend most of our time on the road seeing and talking to companies instead of participating in sales processes and looking at IMs, which is why a large part of our deals is proprietary sourced as we look for what we want to buy instead of what's for sale. And throughout the year, this leads to roughly 350 to 400 cold calls on companies to present our ideas, which is also why you need a pretty senior team. Definitely. And you've touched on that kind of deal sourcing element um, towards the, the end of your response there. And I wanted to ask you a bit more about that as well. Obviously, um, OEP has a European presence and a US presence. So I, I wondered if you could tell me a bit about how that kind of works, um, how it comes into play for deal sourcing. Is there cooperation between the teams? Does it give you different perspectives, having a view of both markets? Yeah, I think as I previously said, I think it's an advantage to be able to operate and support companies globally, um, as most of our mid-market competitors don't do it. By having offices in the US and Europe, we are quickly able to assemble joint teams from both regions. We have industry experts on both sides of the Atlantic and um, thereby can, can staff teams with the right sector know-how, market know-how, and for example, can quickly present and introduce potential add-on candidates in, in each relevant market. I think as a matter of fact, OEP was founded based on a transatlantic combination when our founder and president Dick Cashin back in 2001 was trying to support an American company to buy a German one. And the previously independent German team was trying to do the same with the same German company. So they met over this combination and um, and saw that they have a similar approach, a similar thinking. And ever since, uh, roughly 50% of our deals involves like a transatlantic combination or transatlantic angle where we can use mixed teams from, from the US and Europe. And if you look at Europe, if you zoom in at, at what we do in Europe, um, we've been successfully able to source and ex execute deals in all major markets from Finland in the north to Spain in the south from our home bases in Frankfurt and Amsterdam. And um, we, of course, view Europe as well as the US as a core investment region for us. And maybe one more element when it comes to sourcing, um, I touched upon our outbound calls, the 350 to 400 calls we do each year. And, and they are based on a differentiated approach, which we call the IRON process. And IRON essentially stands for I is the industry expertise, which our senior team has. R is the research efforts, which are done by our research teams, where we work on specific themes. Um, o are the operating professionals with whom we work either in deal sourcing, as well as in portfolio management and development. And then stands for networking um, within the relevant industries in which we invest in and where we've built up a track record and credibility. And you know you've you've described obviously OAP has a has a long heritage, but it's perhaps not necessarily been the the easiest thing to kind of get 
airtime in a sense as a mid-market fund in the last year or so, just thinking particularly about kind of the the pools of, of capital that have been taken up by mega funds. There's this phrase around um, last year being kind of the, the year of the mega fund. Um, a lot of large cap fundraisers kind of, um, you know, taking up space, taking up um, taking up capital. But I, I wanted to ask you, you know, given um, OEP's track record and given that I think you're, you're deploying at the moment via a $2.75 billion fund that was raised in 2022, why might an LP commit to a mid-market fund or want to see mid-market deal flow and, ex- and exposure in its portfolio in, in the current environment there? You know, I suppose you'll hopefully tell me, you know, there are kind of strong, strong arguments for an investor to, to want this exposure um, in, in their portfolio. Yeah, sure. Um, maybe some statistics first. Um, I would say, the mid-market as we see it accounts for roughly 50% of the total PE market. And this is basically defining fund sizes between 1 billion and 5 billion. And, and therefore it's already a large part, I would say, of, of LP commitments um, into the mid-market. And yet it is very true that last year, 23, mainly the mega funds have been really successful in fundraising. Um, they have blue chip names. They are most widely known. They have a longer track record. Um, they offer low return dispersion, which in the end is an important attribute for cautious investor navigating choppy markets, which we essentially had and 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 still have. And um, this is when I would say investors are, are looking for downside risk protection and they just perceive um, mega funds as, as providing this as they also have multiple fund strategies under one umbrella, which also might be appealing to, to some LPs in a, in a difficult fundraising environment. And also, I think you have to keep in mind that at a time of volatility, large share of allocations are made to bigger funds, um, point basically also to investor opting to deploy their smaller pools of capital in re-ups with existing trusted partners. Um, and many of these are, are running large cap strategies. Investors, I would say, however, do have to balance the advantages of mega funds with some of the drawbacks. And um, if you look at the deal making activity in the past two years, 22, 23, you see that the size of the companies that mega funds target mean that they have to use a huge amount of leverage. Yet banks in the past two years have somehow reduced their appetite for. Um, financing bigger transactions. And when debt markets are stagnant, it becomes more challenging for mega funds uh, to buy and sell company, which jams up fundraising as there's limited scope to deploy capital in, in new deals, right? And um, and consequently, there have been less deal activity, which brings me to the mid-market um, and which why LPs invest in mid-market and should continue to do so as um, the mid-market managers like us, we have a larger market to source deals from, which significantly increase, increases the chances of doing deals. Um, additionally, it adds to the diversification of uh, the LP's portfolio by adding mid-market exposure. Um, mid-market managers also are typically focused on smaller deals where there's less reliance on debt markets and it's easier to underwrite deals with equity. Um, and there's also more scope to generate returns from growth and operational improvements when investing in smaller, less mature 
companies. Yes, and I suppose um, in some respects as well, when you're looking at the kind of exit side, it's probably slightly easier to make those those exits that aren't, um, you know, as as large, but are, you know, still hopefully kind of impressive from a returns generation perspective. I know um, last year OEP sold uh, Volki, which is a Finnish packaging and engineering materials business, and obviously you raised a continuation fund as well for two of your assets. Um, I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, DWK Life Sciences, which is a uh, you know glassware manufacturer and um, Usco as well, um, which is a aftermarket construction parts manufacturer and distributor. So obviously, you know, you've been able to show kind of returns and liquidity events there. No, I, I think uh, that's perfectly right. So um, there's been other exits, which we've done a company called CDI in the US as well. So um, if you look at OEP, if we look at our um, pace of investments, um, we have not really been affected by this environment, neither on the buying nor on the selling side. We've seen a robust deal making in last year in 23, and we continue to look at a very healthy deal pipeline and active discussions on both sides of the Atlantic. Excellent. And, you know, on that note, it would be good to hear a bit about, you know, the what you think the outlook is for deal making in 2024 portfolio. I suppose some of the the macro factors that people have been contending with are getting a little bit more stable, hopefully, when it comes to inflation and interest rates. But at the same time, there's a lot of geopolitical uncertainty. And with that framing, I was wondering, you know, Jörg, how, how do you see the, the outlook? Where do you see opportunities for OEP's strategy in the next 12 months or so? Yeah, I mean, it's exactly what you said. I would say deal-making in Europe and and across the world in the US has been really entangled in high inflation, rising interest rates, uncertain economic outlook. Um, Deal values have been falling. Um, Volumes are still haven't fallen as much. Um, That is basically thanks to to the middle market, I would say. Um, And while inflation is still well above where the ECB, ECB targets in, in 2%. Um, it feels like the threat of a recession is uh, receding, having a positive outlook, I believe, on, on 24 deal activity. Also, valuations appear to have stabilized over the course in, in 23. So there now can be more of a meeting of minds between buyers and sellers because sellers were slow to react to the changed environment, the rising um, interest rates, the uncertainty in the market, and basically were slow to adapt their price expectations on the buyer side that has been quicker implemented. And um, basically, if these sort of uh, two parties, basically buyers and sellers, are, are, are more easier to meet, then that's when M&A will, will turn a corner and, and deal-making will will continue. So I remain cautiously optimistic uh, for 24. Um, We are specifically continue to look at opportunities to support companies to add to their capabilities, build scale, enter new markets, enhance their competitive position in their respective markets. So all around transformative combinations. And um, throughout the years, not since COVID, but also before, we've been very much focused on technology and digitization, um, also including gaining access to AI and other emerging technologies to enhance capabilities and and tell us, as well as basically offer productivity and efficiency gains. 
And these investments have continued to 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 grow and uh, be active in in 23. So um, I also continue to see the tech market as, as a market which will remain strong and robust throughout the year. And um, this essentially is for OEP, but also for the overall uh, PE market, uh, a, a very important area and, and sector um, in 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 24 as well. And what about the kind of industrials and healthcare outlook for, for OEP in, in Europe? I know those are two sectors you, you also cover. Right. I mean, healthcare for us is more a, a US-focused topic. Um, that's where we have the, the sector expertise. You mentioned DWK. DWK is a life science and pharma company um, on one hand. So they deliver um, products into these markets. So we have an... Um, and, and a touch point there, yet this is also an industrial company to some extent as they provide packaging um, solutions. So um, also on the industrial side, um, actually we've seen good activity in 23 and I also expect that to continue in 24, whereas our um, funds six and seven used to be even more tilted to tech. Um, fund eight is right now more tilted to the industrial side um, as we see good opportunities in that market and are taking advantage of, of them. Mm -hmm. And hopefully good uh, good value creation opportunities as well. Um, you know, that's a big topic that, you know, my colleagues and I have discussed on on this podcast previously. Um, and I know you mentioned, you know, in the mid-market, there's um, kind of lots of good options for value creation with the types of businesses you're you're buying. I'm curious, I, I know you've sort of mentioned buy and build. Are there any other sort of levers you think, you know, have particular potential in, in 2024 for value creation? Um, I think one thing that's important, which also relates to buy and build is becoming more important for your suppliers and for your customers, um, which means gaining scale, gaining size, gaining regional breadth, gaining more capabilities. So you can either do that organically by investing in expanding into different regions, or you can do it through acquisition. Um, you can do that organically by investing in capabilities, or you can do that for acquisitions. But this is something which we've been um, very successfully doing. Um, also, what we see as an interesting theme is serving the North from the South, especially in the tech market. Um, ever since COVID, remote work is, I mean, we are having a video conference. In 19, we probably would have had a phone conference or, or basically uh, um, uh, been meeting physically. Um, so before COVID, uh, everybody was expecting you to be on site um, to work at, at the customer's uh, offices. And this has changed. So that gives you the opportunity to um, to deploy your um, capabilities from from different areas and and different regions and and that's also something where we where we see big upside and then backing the winners in the end. So you have to have somebody that is delivering for supporting one of the sort of uh, strong guys in the industry, let's say cloud conversion, AWS or Azure, Microsoft, if you, um, do certain services on that basis, you profit from their growth. And uh, right now also AI is, is of course in everybody's mind, even though the people and the companies not yet fully understand how to implement it and what are the real use cases that will shake out and develop in the, in the coming years, I would say. 
Yes. And we've talked quite a lot there about opportunities, of course, but, you know, there are still, still challenges that remain. I suppose you've touched on, um, you know, buyer seller valuation gaps, um, which was, you know, it's been quite, quite a topic. Um, obviously moving, moving close together, hopefully in, in some sectors, but, you know, how would you say, challenges like that are likely to develop in in 2024 and is there anything that you know the mid-market private equity industry in particular is doing to overcome this or um the oep is doing you know in your kind of sourcing efforts and in um the the companies you're you're speaking to yeah i think it's it's important to note first that the previous whatever one and a half two years have been probably the most challenging years since the financial crisis in 2008 2009 um with the interest rates, the geopolitical tension, the recession fears. Um, and MA activity hit a, a low point in the first quarter, 23. Um, I think Q4 was already sort of the most uh, active quarter of last year. So you see an upward trend and, and we feel that and we see that. And if you look at basically the what we see in the market, I mean, you see abundant dry powder by private equity companies. So they have something like 2.6 trillion in available funds to, to execute new deals. Um, so this will essentially have a positive impact uh, going forward. Um, I previously mentioned the converging price expectations between buyer and seller. So here we have had a reset and, and both sides have narrowed and this will essentially enable um, more deal making. And one important element is also, if you look at the PE industry, um, PE companies need to show liquidity because currently there's a huge misalignment between the massive volume of transactions closed in recent years and a historically low exit rate. Um, and that leads to a growing backlog of PE assets. And um, to have a successful fundraise, you need to show exits. You need to return money to your investor. And um, this essentially puts pressure on the private equity market to start um, monetize some of their assets. And this will also add to increased, I would say, activity um, activity next year. And um, we also touched upon the better financeability of deals. So um, uh, the debt markets are, are opening up. Um, buyers have basically adjusted to the new level. Um, have put the new interest rates into their models. And um, especially the private debt market is very active and, and supporting deals. Um, and then also, not so much for us, but also there's distressed opportunities, right? So there's companies that have to refi their, um, their debts that now have to deal with a significantly higher interest uh, um, payments, which might put them in a not operationally, but from a financial perspective, might put them in distress, which will create opportunities uh, going forward and add to the deal making. And I think everybody has to continue to be creative. Um, the middle market uh, has to be continue to find creative way, ways to get deals done, either by high, making higher cash contributions, having uh, buying minority stakes, having owners to roll, uh, working with um, earnouts um, or essentially working through seller's notes. I think these are all tools that have been uh, used frequently um, more and more in order to get deals done. And you also mentioned uh, continuation fund. Sometimes continuation funds are also good vehicles 
to provide liquidity, but also to provide an ongoing support to portfolio companies. Um, a company might be in an older fund where there's not enough equity left, but you still might have opportunities to help the company grow through acquisition. And then a continuation fund might make sense. And I think that said, overall, challenges remain. Um, in particular, the high cost of capital, the uncertainty, um, which will push companies to consider um, larger transformational deals with an even higher level of scrutiny. Bidders will continue to exercise a high degree of caution, leading through a more thorough due diligence process and longer execution periods. And um, why the macro environment, I would say, is likely to continue to represent some sort of a headwinds to PE investors. I think they are declining, they are reducing. So I'm looking optimistically in, into 24. And I believe that 24 and beyond could yield some tremendous opportunities and uh, could be a year when we look back and said, well, that was the year when vintages were made. So that's essentially what we hope. and. Uh, I think what what also could be ahead of us. Excellent. No, I'm I'm very very curious to see how the year turns out. But obviously, you've got you know a very broad perspective on this, Jörg. I think you joined um, OAP in 2006, and you had a background in restructuring back then. Just sort of lastly, you know, thinking about kind of that experience you have. How does how does this market sort of feel compared with others, or compared with kind of when you started your um your time kind of specifically in the private equity industry and, and with OEP? I think it's at least what we what I learned back in restructuring um comes in handy today because in restructuring you have to deal with a lot of uncertainty. Um, you have to look at different scenarios. Um, you have to deal with rapidly changing, I would say, situations and, and an environment and that's a little bit what 23 also has been like. Um, and um, we have to remain flexible. We have to remain, be humble. And um, and I think that that's something that um, I've learned in my past, but also, I mean, I entered in 2006, you said, right? And uh, seven and eight, we entered the global financial crisis. So that was an interesting timing where also the restructuring know-how came in handy. Um, we don't have so many restructuring cases um, at hand um, right now. So, so um, from that perspective, I'd say that knowledge is is not so relevant yet. Um, thinking in different scenarios and um, and um, yeah, being prepared and and uh, and. Um, being prepared for different outcomes is is certainly what we still need also for for the coming year. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Jörg, very much for taking the time to speak with me. It's uh, it's been really fascinating to hear your insights on on the mid market and the outlook for twenty twenty four. Thank you, thank you for giving me the opportunity. And thank you, listener, for tuning in. If you like the podcast, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you again in the next episode.